0: life issues with Vicky gibbons on ucb one a tale as old as time two best friends fall in love and start a family life is that joyful kind of hectic every day there's love and purpose and fulfillment but this time there's no happy ever after here in the uk one in two of us will be diagnosed with cancer in our lifetime but how many of us ever want to dwell on that possibility and how it could turn our lives upside down? That was the case for George and Louise Blythe. In pain and disillusionment, not even sure if God was real, could faith be found when others would doubt facing such suffering? I'm Vicki Gibbons and our Life Issues today is with Louise. It's so good to welcome you. Thank you for having me. Before we talk about George and the red tie and how you guys met, let's start off by, I guess, exploring a bit about your own childhood and dreaming of the future and expectations about the world. What was it like for you growing up?
1: So I um, grew up in Nottingham um, and that is where I live now. And I had a really lovely childhood. I was very, very lucky. It wasn't a Christian childhood, um, but it was full of love and full of joy and full of adventure my parents are both teachers um so lots of my childhood was spent really camping um, which actually is quite a Christian endeavor I've since realized when I was younger I think really for me my expectations of what my life would be were limitless I think that's the way for lots of children when I look at the world through the eyes of my children that's definitely what I see and I just really wanted to be successful, but didn't really know what I wanted to be successful in. So how did
0: you end up being a part of the chocolate company then?
1: (laughs) So I, I studied at school and then I went to university and my dad gave me some great advice, which was: if you don't know what you want to do, just keep studying until you figure it out. And so I went to university and studied English literature and French and had a lovely time. And at the end of my time at university, sort of thought, oh, gosh, you know, now I've got to figure out what next. And there was a conversation that happened with my neighbor's granddaughter. And she said to me, I've been working at this chocolate factory and gosh, it's great. And it's really high energy. And I remember thinking, wow, that sounds really interesting. I'm really, really interested in that. I'd like to find out more. So I went home. And research an industry which I now know is called FMCG, fast moving consumer goods, applied for various different graduate schemes just in the way that you would apply for a university place and was lucky to be given a place in 2005. And
0: it wasn't long before you bumped into George. Tell us about your first impressions of him.
1: Well, I actually met George before our first day at the chocolate factory. So we'd done an induction day, and that was the first time that I'd met him. And I was feeling really overwhelmed and really, you know, outside of my comfort zone, in all honesty. And all of those enemy voices were going on in my head. And you shouldn't be here. You're not good enough. Everyone else is loads better than you. And I was wearing this suit, which was, you know, itchy and (laughs) a new thing in itself. And I walked into the conference center where we were we were having our induction and George was sat lounging out on a chair. I'm just like, oh, thank goodness. Someone else is here. You know, I've been here for ages. They told me the wrong time. And he just had no sort of boundaries at all in, in terms of how he approached the people in the organization we were going to be working for. He spoke to them like they were all his long last friends and family. And there was just this ease and peace around him actually, is the words I would use.
0: I've seen some pictures of him.
1: He seems remarkably tall as well. I mean,
0: a chap that you definitely can miss physically, let alone personality-wise. What would you say were some of his his standout qualities beyond this sense of peace around him and just how obviously extrovert he was?
1: Well, he was very tall. So George was six foot three and he had very blue eyes. I remember actually the first time my brother met him, he, he actually said to him, my gosh, your eyes, they're like marbles. I've never seen anyone with such blue eyes. Um, and George was just, he was a joker. He didn't take life too seriously, although he did take life seriously in the moments that mattered. But even in the moments that mattered, he had this brilliant way of grounding himself in just a really positive outlook. He, he was the master of the positive mindset. Did you
0: know quite early on, that George was the man for you?
1: Absolutely not. You know, in the opening chapter of Hope is Coming, I talk about us falling in love. And there's so much expectation on love. And actually, one of my real eye-opening, I suppose, lessons that I've had as I've kind of become a Christian and come into the Christian community, is that, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, as Christians, we're just as bad as everybody else. Like we have this huge, we've got this huge expectation on love and relationships and marriage. And I absolutely wasn't going into this job role to meet who would be my future husband. I mean, I'd be lying if I said I hadn't thought, oh, there might be some good looking guys there. Let's, <laughs> let's see who's going to be around. I was 23, you know, at the time and single. But equally, when we met for the first time, I just thought, who is this guy, he's just, I've never met anyone else like him. He was really, really confident, really sure of himself, really purpose-filled in terms of the direction that he wants to take, but he just took everybody with him, and gen- genuinely, he was magnetic, but he wasn't just magnetic to me, he was magnetic to a lot of people who were around him. And so we all became really, really good friends. And the six of the people who we started on this adventure at the Chocolate Factory with are still now very, very close friends.
0: Eventually, you ended up, of course, getting married. Why a church? Because had it ever come up, the whole meaning of life? What's the point of it all? Why Why did you decide to go down the church route?
1: I mean, we'd had lots of conversations about the meaning of life genuinely it was something we talked about often i mean this is pre-children so this is you know when you have time to lounge around and consider these bigger questions and we did wonder about it and when we got married george was very much a traditionalist and he said straight away oh my gosh we've got to get married in the church in the town where i'm from and you know i used to sing in the choir there so it was almost this um spirit of tradition, I suppose, more than anything else. I genuinely would have followed George to wherever he wanted to get married. I was so in love that if he'd said to me, get married in a swimsuit on a beach, I probably would have thought, oh, that's not really what I want to do. But I think I probably would have ended up doing it because I just was so excited about being married and for me there wasn't any boundaries or limitations on where that could take place it was it was really more him than than me who drove the whole let's marry in a church
0: so then life got underway as normal buying a house having children what then drastically changed the direction that you were moving in
1: yeah so we'd we bought our second house and we'd relocated back from the south to Nottinghamshire, which is where I grew up. And our youngest little boy was about six months old. When George decided to take matters into his own hands from a healthcare point of view, because he'd been having lots and lots of symptoms, which we retrospectively found out were bowel cancer. No one could actually sort of quite put their finger on, and at every turn, every turn, he was told, "Oh no, don't worry about that that weight loss. Don't worry about that bleeding from that bo- bleeding from your bottom, or the incredible, incredible exhaustion and tiredness you feel. Don't worry about that. You're, you're far too young to have cancer." And in the end, George was really lucky to have um, some private healthcare through his work, and he went and saw someone had a blood report done, and the guy who he saw said, "Look, if it was me and you were my son," And you've got private health care. I know that the doctor hasn't advised you to do it, but go and get a colonoscopy, which is a procedure where you have a camera, put up your bottom through your rectum and into your intestine. So George Merrill, went off to go and have this procedure. And we genuinely had no idea about the nuclear sized bomb that was going to detonate. He went and had this procedure on his own in London. And... I was at home with the kids getting the Christmas decorations ready in our house. And the moment that the guy put the camera into his rectum, he saw a tumour. And he was diagnosed in the room where he was having the procedure, even though, you know, the consultant had said to him, look, I can't officially diagnose you here, but I, I know that this is cancer. I see this, you know, I look at these things all day long and I know what this looks like. So when I got the phone call which was I've got cancer it was just life altering life defining and I always say to people you know my life changed the 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 pivot of my life on this earth changed in that instant because that was the that was a very dark turning point for us who up until that point had lived this Fairy tale, Perfect. Life.
0: Can you remember what you were thinking at that point? Because in the book you talk about how, you know, Georgie Sells conducting this invisible warfare inside him. It cl- clearly been happening for some time. You'd had these conversations with other medical professionals trying to reassure you, but then you still ended up with that significant diagnosis.
1: Yeah, so what happened in the part of the story that unfolded next was that I mean, ultimately, I think as human beings, we are wired to hope. So when George was initially diagnosed, the narrative that everybody wanted to give us was, look, he's still incredibly young, he's really fit, he's really healthy, we he can beat this. And then the narrative became that this is bowel cancer, which is really, really treatable. We think we probably got this really, really early. And bowel cancer is very treatable, like a lot of other cancers, if it is caught at an early stage. So George went through the the process of being scanned um, to understand if there was any further spread. And I suppose in the initial aftermath of the initial diagnosis of understanding that George had cancer, there was utter shock and utter confusion. But then immediately there was this, okay, this is George, he can fight it, he's young, he's going to be okay. But a few days later when we discovered that George was basically in the worst of the worst case scenarios. And that was that his cancer had spread into his liver and lymph nodes, which is classified as a stage four diagnosis. I remember being sat in the doctor's office and just thinking, I don't know how we move forward from this point. I mean, I'm being sat down and told that my husband has cancer in one of his major organs And even though at that point, no one had given us any statistics that came later when George requested them, you know, it just was devastating. It was armpit sweating, gut wrenching, disgustingness. And actually the physical response was more than the emotional response. For for many days afterwards, I was in a place of numbness and shock and disbelief at what was happening. The physicality was real.
0: And yet, at the same time, daily life almost having to continue with Charlie and Jamie.
1: Yeah, I mean, our children were two and six months old when George was diagnosed. So there's no respite. I mean, that is arguably one of the hardest life stages. It's the rush hour season of life where there's always nappies to be changed, food to cook, food to be wiped up, nap times to be drilled. You know, it's it was relentless and it was already exhausting because my youngest was a baby and he wasn't sleeping through the night he was six months old you know he used to still wait regularly to be fed and i had this terrible dilemma of oh my gosh i'm gonna have to stop breastfeeding because i've got to accompany my husband to hospital appointments and i'm not going to be there to to be able to be with him and I'm also not going to be able to be there to be with my child who I'm supposed to be with. This is my maternity leave. This is our time together. You know, it was it was horrendous. It was utterly, disgustingly, brutally awful. For you
0: and George, you wanted to face this head on and tackle it in your own unique way with your own kind of marketing heads on. It was a car journey that you came across a beautiful poem that, in a way inspired the strategy for how you're going to deal with it in the coming months tell us
1: about Invictus this was before we knew God but it's so interesting when I look back and reflect because I now think wow you know God was there all the time but we just didn't realize how he was speaking to us and how he was moving in our hearts and one of one of the moments that I do look back on and think you know God was really in that was this moment when we when we had this car journey north so we were we were running away so we just found out that the cancer was really advanced really bad we didn't know what to do we couldn't sit still but we couldn't do anything i mean one of the most frustrating parts of being diagnosed with cancer is you get given this really really bad news and then you just go home and wait until you get an appointment to start your treatment which could be two or three or four weeks later and you sit at home thinking whoa okay I'm killing myself here and I've just got to wait this out now until I can put some medicine inside me or have surgery so we ran away to the Yorkshire Dales and in the car journey on the way north we were talking around um how we wanted to deal with this cancer so you're right in saying you know George and I both had been trained at the chocolate factory and have worked in sales and marketing and George said to me I'm not not having cancer I don't like the connotations of what the name cancer brings it brings such fear it brings such dread it brings such disgust I don't want cancer I've got cancer but I don't want this to be all about my cancer Mm. I'm having a project name and in the corporate world that we were working in you know that was the norm any new product development would have some fantastical project name a bit like The Apprentice So we said, right, okay, we need a project name. And George plucked the name Invictus. It felt like out of the sky. He had no idea of the connotations of the word. He'd not read the poem at school. It wasn't something that he knew about. And when we found the poem, the Hemingway poem that is Invictus, and we read it in the car on the journey north, it was... It was our early scripture is how I would describe it. We read these words and we felt validated. We felt seen. We felt inspired. We felt full of hope. And, you know, again, I look back and I reflect and I think, gosh, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because if if George had said to me, Psalm as the project name, I probably would have been like, oh, I don't know about that. It's not (laughs) one of Kim Kardashian's kids' names. That's 100% what I would have said. That would have been my association or Ezekiel you know I don't know if it would have had the same impact so God obviously clearly met us where we were and gave us this poem as something that we could stand on in the months that would come
0: You're listening to Life Issues on UCB. My guest, Louise Blythe, who has published a book called Hope is Coming, a true story of grief and gratitude. Louise, you've got a whole chapter in there uh, named No Coincidences because you are someone who now reflects back and sees that actually with God, there are no coincidences, like with that poem we were hearing there, Invictus. From that place of feeling like you were together together, in this there were moments though where perhaps separation divide crept in being in different places with dealing with this diagnosis dealing with the treatment and there was one night where it all got too much and usually an argument between you both
1: yeah so i mean we fast forward now eight to nine months in time and We just found out that George's cancer was incurable and the doctors had said to us, look, you know, we don't think now that we can make George better. This is going to be that you guys live with this. And that just felt so horrendous because all of our hope, all of our hope had been centered on the truth that George would get better. That was the narrative that we told ourselves. It was the desperate hope that we spoke over our lives And when that got taken away from us and we realized that that wasn't going to be the truth and we were sat down and told that very clearly, it was incredibly difficult. You know, we were still relatively early into our marriage and, you know, figuring out parenting. So then to be told that George was going to die sooner rather than later was hideous. And George dealt with it by actually not wanting to really admit that it was happening which I've also since learned is is very common for people who are given these horrendous diagnoses but for the person who sat at their side which was me in this case it was awful because I was there thinking okay well you're going to die I'm going to be left here I'm going to have to be the one that has to do everything and there was almost this you know dare I say it jealousy of the fact that he would be the one that would die because I was the one that was going to be left literally holding the babies and I was so angry I was so sad I was so 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 disbelieving that this could be the case and George just wouldn't admit or let me speak to any of these emotions and it bubbled up with this huge argument which led to me getting into the car and slamming the door and leaving the house, which, if I'm honest, was not something that I ever did. Even before we were married, it just wasn't really my style. It never has been. My parents always taught me to resolve disputes and always, always say sorry. But I was so mad that day that I was like, no, I was angry. I was angry that he was dying. But I got in my car and I went round driving where I lived.
0: You were driving? clearly seeking searching something but at that point was it about
1: god so initially it wasn't about god initially it was about i just need to escape it was the classic fight or fly i have to get out of here and i don't know where i'm headed but i've just got to be moving i need to be moving somewhere and whilst i'm moving i'm going to figure out what I need to do, and in my head, I was thinking about okay, where where do I need to go? What's going to make me feel better? Could I go to my parents? Oh no, I don't want to speak to them. Could I ring one of my friends? Oh no, they're just not going to get it. And I was so mindful because one of the real sort of realities, harsh realities of grief, is that you um, you don't grieve sometimes, and you don't show your sadness, particularly to the people who are also massively impacted by what's happening because you're worried that they will be worried about you if you really let it go and show how sad and how on the edge you are. So there's this level of sort of safeguarding that you do for the people that you love, which for me in that instance was my friends and my mum and dad. And I was thinking, I don't know where to go. And in the end, I remember thinking, right, well, I need, I need to just go and find a stranger, a stranger that will talk to me. Where will I find a stranger that will talk to me? And in that moment I thought, I know a church. I need to go to a church There'll be a friendly person in the church that will speak to me. And granted, maybe I've watched too many sort of rom com American movies <laughs> where that's the narrative that's depicted. And I even talk in the book about Home Alone and the scene in Home Alone when Kevin's in the church and he has this, he's really scared and he goes to the church when he misses his mom. And I felt like Kevin in Home Alone that night. I was literally thinking, right, I'm going to go to this church, I go, go to a church, go to any church. I didn't know where the churches even were around where I lived and I'll feel safe. And then I tried to find a church that was open, which on an October weekday at, you know, five o'clock when it's dark was slim to none. And I hadn't really computed that in my head. So I drove around, you know, stopping in front of the gates of all of these very rural village churches because we live in nottinghamshire in in a village and every single church i went to the door was locked and i was so cross i was so cross i'm thinking i can't believe this I'm, i'm trying to get some help and there's no one here there's no one to talk to me and it was at that moment that i screamed at god because i was so livid. I was livid that George was dying. I was livid that George had cancer. I was livid that I was living through this and going to be a widow. I was livid that my children were going to be fatherless. And I was really, really mad at God because I hadn't sort of thought, oh, I'm going to go speak to God. I was going to go speak to one of his people and they weren't even there. And I was thinking, well, where are you? Who are you? Why aren't you here? And that was when I went and screamed and I screamed. And actually immediately after it happened, I just, felt filled with shame because I remember thinking oh my gosh like what am I doing that that is so out of character where did that come from oh my word I need to go home and you know I'd left the kids with George I mean they were with their dad but they were with their dad who was sick and dying and you know I'd been probably out of the house for 50 minutes and everything I've I've just got I've just got to get back so I got back in the car composed myself went home and thought oh not had an outburst like that before but okay
0: it wasn't something that you told George about, was it? That those feelings of shame, was it something that you then kind of buried deep, put to one side, focused on George and what was happening in the coming days?
1: Yeah, I didn't I didn't tell anyone about it. And actually, I didn't even realize that I'd actually asked God to show himself until almost 3 weeks later when post George's death. So two days after George's death, I went to church and I remember walking to the church and everyone being really, really shocked to see me. I didn't go to church. That was the first time I went to church ever in my life because they sort of said to me, oh, you know, you are always so welcome to come. And they said, oh my gosh, we can't believe you're here. And I said, well, he's real. You know, I'm here to worship God. And I remember them all just looking at me, just like, Whoa, okay, okay, that's great. Um, but at the end of that service, someone said to me did you ask did you ask God to show you and I remember thinking did I ask him and in that moment I suddenly remembered that I had and that's when it kind of the penny really dropped for me around whoa gosh yeah you're right I really really did ask for this you know it wasn't that I just wished for it, it was I had screamed and asked to be shown.
0: And the way that God responded was through different individuals in those final few days in George's life. Tell us a bit about your understanding of the conversations that you had certainly with George and the medical professionals about his death because So often the wider debate in society is about dying well, having a good death, but you're someone who has actually seen the brutality of what death can bring and the the immense suffering for a loved one.
1: Yeah, so I mean we we had a tale of two halves of George's last two weeks in the hospital. So if we kind of then fast forward from that point in time where I went and screamed to God a few days later we found ourselves in emergency at the hospital and George was admitted because his symptoms were just so bad that we couldn't we couldn't care for him at home and he was given some chemotherapy in a last ditch attempt to try and you know help alleviate the growth of the tumors which were growing at rapid pace in his body and the first week in the hospital was hideous it was full of pain it was full of fear it was full of anxiety You know, even as I sit here five and a half years later recalling it, it just feels dark in my head. It was, it was the nightmare that everybody imagines. It was hideous. George was so anxious because he was so scared about what was happening to him. He felt so out of control. He couldn't sleep, even though he was utterly exhausted. He was so tearful. He was weak. It was, it was brutal it was utterly utterly brutal and you know the medics what I've learned about medicine and and the way in which you know medics respond often in these sort of trauma cases are they don't they're very good at not necessarily telling you what's going to happen next even though there is a, a pathway often that people with certain disease and certain symptoms follow so there was never any sort of consternation from the medical team about what was happening in Georgia's body. And, you know, since George's death, you know, I've I haven't done a huge amount of research, but I'm very well connected in the bowel cancer community. And I see images of people in end of stage care of bowel cancer. And the machines and the contraptions that they have around them are the same. Which leads me to know and understand that, you know, there's similar side effects that people present with and similar problems that they encounter with this type, with this specific type of cancer so it was it was horrible for that first week in hospital, and it was only when we had a time of prayer that things really began to change.
0: How did Brianna come into your life then? Because I know at one point in the book you you talk about there being three options that you seriously considered: one was around assisted dying, another was. Trying to get your friend to do some research about were there any other options when it came to pioneering treatment? And then the third option was the big guy.
1: I mean, the really short answer as to how did Brianna come into my life? Well, I asked. I screamed at God to show himself, and he showed himself to me through the people that love and follow Jesus. That's the straightforward answer. The more convoluted answer was a series of strange non-coincidental occurrences that happened which ended and I suppose culminated in this crescendo of synchronicity that went on between myself and this lady called Brianna who I had never met before so the potted very shortened version of events which you can read more of in hope is coming is I went home the night that I screamed at God and that night I received a text message from a friend who had been at a wedding and at that wedding, she'd been approached by Brianna and Brianna had said, look, on some level, I feel like I need to pray for a friend in your life. Um, and my, my friend at the wedding had just found out that day that George's cancer was incurable. She was a very close family friend and she was in pieces and they'd had this time of prayer. My friend was not a Christian at this wedding. That was a very non-Christian wedding. And my friend had said, look, you know, what you've just done to me is really powerful. Would you would you pray for my friends? And she said, yeah, of course, you know, give them my number and tell them about the um, the 24-7 healing rooms in London. You know, they can ask for prayer there. So I get this message saying, I've met this girl and it's all a bit bizarre. And, you know, here's her number and here's some places to pray. And I'm thinking, great, great. And, and in the book, I tell the story of trying to get hold of the prayer rooms in the UK and then trying to get hold of the church in America and at every turn, not being able to, to get a hold of the people that I wanted to, to pray. And then ultimately saying to my friend, you know, look, I can't get hold of any of these people. Can I just have this lady's number? Can I speak to her directly? And I mean, her side of the story, she's now a really good friend. Her side of the story was, I mean, she was terrified, right? She just offered some prayer at a wedding. She's just a normal, amazing girl who works in events production in London. And she you know she'd felt God saying to her really strongly you've got to go you have to intercede on this one and she did and she had the bravery and courage to do that which is just still now something that blows my mind I mean for me at the time I remember thinking oh this is just what Christians do and now I'm in the world of Christianity I realize how much shame and how you know how much we don't just step forward and pray for people because we tell ourselves that it's you know not the right thing and people will think we're crazy and and we're mad and all these things but at the time, I just thought, oh, yeah, she's Christian. She prays. OK, perfect. She'll do. She can pray. And that sounds so awful of me. But that was essentially what happened. But there was a synchronicity that, that gathered around the way that we came to know one another, which culminated in her saying, OK, you can't get hold of anyone else. I will get on a train from London. I will come to the hospital in Nottingham. And I will physically sit and pray over George.
0: It was more than prayer in the end, wasn't it? Because it involved some Ribena and Holy Communion and... To totally not freak you both out. She didn't start from that place of breaking bread and saying, let's eat together. But indeed, she started with prayer. And tell us about this amazing, you use the word so frequently, energy that filled the room in the hospital.
1: In the book, I call it energy because that's what I named it as at the time. I now know it was the Holy Spirit. I had no experience of the Holy Spirit. I didn't really understand what that was. I thought it was just part of a prayer that I maybe sometimes used to say at primary school. I didn't know what it meant when the Holy Spirit moved. So all I could describe was what I was feeling, which was this, this energy, this force, which I think is disarming, actually, for some Christians in the way that I, I do describe it in the book. So Brianna came and she and she prayed with us and, and just as you said, you know, she didn't she didn't go in lightly. This wasn't a just like, oh yes, you know, let me let me pray. It was she was all in. You know, she went for it. It wasn't a like, I'm gonna stand back. It was a okay, this guy is dying and I'm gonna pray as if he's dying. And she asked permission, which she was fully, fully given. But even when she began to pray, I, I sat there and thought, oh gosh, what have I done? Uh, this, you know, this is way out there. Like this is too much for me. Who have I invited into George's hospital room? This is insania. But then George said, will you come and sit next to me and hold my hand? And he had not invited or asked anyone placed his bedside outside of me, his mum, and his sister. He wouldn't let anyone else see him. He wouldn't let anyone else near him. He was almost ashamed of how sort of ravaged his body was by this disease so I thought okay that's not we've not seen that before so I'll go with it because I was I was on the verge of sort of thinking I'm going to throw her out this is too much this is not for me and these prayers continued and I remember sitting in this room and feeling like I was almost being sucked into a vortex but slowly thinking oh no hang on I can't do that I've got to be responsible you know you know, George is really sick and I've got to be on high alert and oh, hang on, I'm being sucked into this vortex again, hang on, I'm going to come back. And that, that happened with this energy in the room and it culminated in this really deeply incredible moment where Brianna pulled out these letters that she'd written. I mean, she's deeply prophetic, which I now know. But, you know, also again for me at the time, prophecy was something from Harry Potter. I was like, what, what is this? I don't know what this is. and. She had written these letters that were prophetic words from God about George and I as as individuals and characters and what was on our hearts. She read these letters. I'm just thinking, my gosh, who is this girl? Like, what is this? Is this mediumship? Is this she's she's definitely tapped into something. I, I was very, very certain of that. What she was tapping into though was so unknown to me that I then had this whole dynamic of well, is this safe? Like, is this, you know, is this normal? But I remember thinking, but this is great. Like, I feel like I'm so peaceful and on the clouds and I I can't explain it. And when we came out afterwards after this experience, I said to her, I don't know what you just did in there, but it was unbelievable. I feel like I'm floating. And she just really nonchalantly said to me, that was the Holy Spirit. You can have that every day if you want. (laughs) I remember thinking, what? How? How do I get this? I want this. Like How how do I have that? That was unbelievable what you just did. Like, I need that and I don't know how to get it. And she said, well, you just pray. She said, but I don't know how to pray. Like, I, I've never prayed. Like I don't know what to say. She said, oh, you do. You do know how to pray. Everyone knows how to pray. And that, that was the beginning. Was that
0: incredible peace that surrounded both you and George, was that enough for you in that moment or were you still holding out, hoping for... For a miracle?
1: So, of course, we were holding out and ho- hoping for a miracle. I mean, I'm never going to sit here and say, I'm so happy that George died. But actually, I do sit here and I say, I am so happy that George died in the way that he did because it was not of this world. And what happened was, I didn't necessarily know what I wanted because the pragmatist and sort of scientist in me was going, okay, George is dying and I can see this and all of the medics are telling me this and he knows that. But this feeling of energy that was the Holy Spirit that was sort of emanating after we prayed these prayers, I was thinking, I don't know what this is. I don't know how I respond to it. I don't know what I can get from it and I don't know what it can give us, but I want more of it this was amazing I, I i need it it's it's the only thing that's come into this hospital room and our lives in the last few months that's that's maybe getting this is this is good we need this this is this is helpful so it was from this place of wanting help rather than wanting a miracle i think that i pursued then i suppose god in its purest sense because i went home that night and I tried really hard to pray. And I remember sitting at home and putting my hands together and leaning on my knees and just, oh, it's awful, so weird and so wrong and so forced and contrite. And in the end, I thought, I'm just going to write him a letter. Because I've been writing letters to George. I've been seeing a therapist who'd been speaking to me about the power of journaling and writing and encouraging me on that. And I thought, right, I'm, this is it. I'm just going to write to him and tell him, tell him, tell him how it is. So that's what I did. And and that was the beginning of my prayer life. And it was just so beautiful. And it I mean, it forms the middle section of Hope is coming is letters. It's letters to George and it's my letters to God. And then it's the answers that I got back, which was just so mind-blowing. Because I always say to people, you know, look, like, I, I witnessed two miracles at the end of George's life. I witnessed God move in this way that is just not of this world because I wrote a prayer, and the sort of again potted story of what happened was I wrote this prayer I was on my own in my house in Nottingham. The very moment that I pressed done on my iNotes and my, in my iPhone, Brianna, who was back home in London, texted me and said, "Them text barrage incoming," and I remember sitting in my bed upstairs and thinking, "Oh my word, probably actually with a swear word in it." that She's going to answer my prayer, and she did. And every time I went on to pray, something would happen. I would immediately get an answer. And at the point in time, a few days later, when I actually sat with a minister in the hospital, so I, I, I kind of got to the point where I was like, okay, this prayer thing is real. Like, this is so real. When you pray, it works. And the first meeting I had with my now minister of the church that I attended Nottingham, I sat with him in the reception area. I said, you know, so I prayed and got the answers. And he said to me, what? What do you mean? he got the answers. Oh, yeah, no, look, look at my phone. And he, I remember him sitting in the reception area and weeping and saying to me, Louise, this is not normal. He said, I'm always so in awe of how God works and what he does. But you know, you don't normally pray to God and get a reply on your phone as a text. Mm. I was like, oh, right, really? <laughs> I, th- I thought that was maybe how it went these days. <laughs> if only. And he just, just, Yeah. Well, and so genuinely, my naivety was so childlike because I just remember thinking, oh, right. Oh, okay. I didn't I didn't know that. I just thought that's how it went
0: you read Louise's book, you will also discover that both Louise and George were an answer to prayer for Simon, that minister as well. And there is a, a great sharing of of how his church has grown and flourished as well during the last few years. Louise, what about George? What did it mean for George? What change happened for George? And the conversations that you were able to have about what happens next for him and celebrating his
1: life and the funeral. The change in George was one of utter utter significance so we went from the day of the day when we prayed for the first time in this hospital room where there was this fear and this darkness and this hurt and this anxiety we left him that night and he that night requested to be on his own in his room for the first time because up until that point his mum had actually slept on a chair by his bedside every night because he'd not want to be on his own and he asked to be on his own that evening, which was also significant. And the next morning, which was shortly after I'd received the answer to my prayer on a text message, I went in to the hospital and he was laid in his bed with his arms outstretched, almost in a sort of Christ like posture, which again did not register with me. And he had his hands on his chest and he just said, Oh my gosh, all of the pain, all of the hurt, all of fear it's all gone and i've got this ball of love and light in my chest and god's real and he's with me and i'm not scared anymore and it's going to be okay because it's not the end when i die it's not the end and i know it's not the end i can feel it i can feel the love in me And I remember at that moment dropping down on my knees in the hospital room because it was, it was, you know, I hadn't read the Bible at that point in time, but it was always biblical what happened in that room, dropping down on my knees and sobbing with my arms out. You know, just being sort of like, oh my gosh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this change. Because the change was just, all I'd wanted in him was for him to be comfortable and peaceful and not in a place of fear and hurt and shame and disgust and, horrendous side effects. And so then we had these five days, which were just incredible. George basked in the Holy Spirit and it never left his room. So medics and nurses were coming in on their days off to come and sit with George. George was quoting scripture. So he he never read the Bible. I mean he might have engaged with it a little bit when he was younger but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't from a Christian home and he was talking to me all the time about perfect love and and, and it wasn't until months later that I came across the scripture that he was talking about and he was just in the state of excitement, hope, anticipation He was so knowing in those last few days. There was a wisdom over him that was not of this world. He knew when he was going to die. So he knew that he would die on a Friday. he, He did. He was very clear about how it was going to happen. He knew he would be by himself. And he was just so full of hope that what he was living now in terms of the peace that he could feel on his body was where he was headed. And it was so clear to everyone that came and sat with him.
0: It was such an intense experience, wasn't it? How did it not feel surreal when then George had passed and you were left with Friends and family who perhaps hadn't encountered that reality, had never seen you express ideas of God and faith. And then to obviously get together this really important and moving service, the cycle of life for George.
1: It was, surreal is the word, it was utterly surreal because I had I had lost, and I've still lost, the love of my life but I gained the greatest love that we can all ever, ever know. So for people that didn't know God, they they couldn't understand it. They I couldn't explain it to them because I kept saying to them, look, it's okay. Like, I need to tell you about what happened. It's okay. Like, obviously it's not okay because George is dead, but it is okay because I figured out that there's heaven and he's, I don't know where it is. I don't know what heaven's like, you know, that's a huge mystery that I'm excited to find out when I die, but you know, he's gone there and I am so sure and so certain of that from everything I've witnessed. So it is awful, but it's also okay. And honestly, I think some people thought I was slightly unhinged that had known me for a really, really long time. People were definitely worried about um, whether or not I've been brainwashed. Um, and I kept saying I have, I've been very much by the Holy Spirit, which probably didn't help me, <laughs> at time. but it was, it was this very, very dramatic, you know, moment of coming to faith. And for me, George's funeral was such a pivotal moment because, you know, a funeral is a sad, sad occasion. And it was the occasion for us to publicly mourn George, but George and I had already decided before he died that we weren't going to make this be just about death it was going to be about life it was going to be about god it was going to be about carrying on because of george and because of god and i mean i stood up in george's funeral and did the eulogy to 400 people and told them god was real which you know i never thought that would be something i'd do in my lifetime but it you know it was and it was it was unbelievable and people still talk about that moment now people who don't have a faith still talk about that moment and how much it inspired them and moved them. And I know it's not because of the words that I spoke and the things that I said. I know it's because what they felt in their hearts was the Holy Spirit. But I just sort of knowingly look and smile and nod, and go, oh yeah, great, yeah, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it?
0: What has God done since the whole exploring faith and maturing in your understanding of God and his word, you know, getting into the Bible?
1: I mean... The last five years has been a crazy, crazy adventure. I mean, I've had to bring up two kids. I've had to do that on my own. I've had to navigate another cancer battle. So my dad sadly was diagnosed shortly after George died and he passed away in 2020. It's been incredibly challenging. And I often say to people, you know, particularly Christians, actually, just because I found God does not mean that my life was this rose tinted perfection it's been really really hard <laughs> grief is horrible it's all consuming it's deeply sad it's feeling deeply deeply lost and lonely and like you'll never find a way forward it's it's really really difficult to navigate through and i was incredibly lucky some might say you know god positioned it for me but i I walked into a church that had planted in Nottingham and that church has been a place that has sustained me, has held me, has taught me. Everything I know about Jesus I've learned from the church that hadn't actually opened when I met the minister who'd come to Nottingham to plant a church. And I owe a lot to them. I owe, I owe, a, you know, really my life to them in many ways, which sounds quite dramatic because it's because of the teaching and the community and the solidarity that I got from there it it genuinely kept my head above water because I felt like that was a group of people who they understood this whole other side of life that I just had revealed to me in a way that nobody else in my life did.
0: Louise thank you so much for sharing this space this time for being our guest today on Life Issues.
1: Thank you. What a remarkable
0: experience of God's comforting presence in the darkest of times for George and Louise. Before we finish together, a reminder that Louise's book is called Hope is Coming, a true story of grief and gratitude and it's published by Yellow Kite. I'm Vicky Gibbons and thank you for listening to this episode of Life Issues. Make sure you subscribe to the series or access more episodes for free via the UCB Player app.